Once again, you can feel the tension here at Cape Canaveral. After having gone through this suspense twice before this week, the weathermen now tell us that barring further unpredicted changes, we have go conditions for Liberty Bell 7, both here and at the recovery area. The word from Pad 5 is, booster and capsule countdown progressing smoothly after a brief hold. Astronaut Gus Grissom, the 35-year-old Air Force captain, is inside the capsule, waiting. We're told he's still cool and calm, ready and eager to make the flight, 115 miles up and back, to become the free world's second man in space. Peter Hackett, NBC News. Hello and welcome. This is Michael Anderson. You're listening to episode 27 of the Space Rocket History Podcast. And now, Mercury Redstone 4, Liberty Bell 7 with Gus Grissom. Mercury Redstone 4 was the fourth mission in the Mercury Redstone series and the second U.S. manned suborbital flight. The mission was essentially a repeat of Alan Shepard's Freedom 7 flight. So, you may ask, why was it necessary to launch another suborbital mission? Why not proceed with an orbital flight to match the Soviet Vostok 1? Well, among other things, the U.S. needed more space experience to corroborate the man-in-space concept. Also, the Redstone was the only booster NASA had that was approved for manned launches. The Atlas booster was available, but not ready. Atlas was capable of putting a Mercury capsule into orbit, but it had been launched three times with unmanned capsules and had exploded two of the three times. NASA's objectives for Mercury Redstone 4 were to familiarize a pilot with a brief but complete space flight experience, including liftoff, powered flight, weightlessness, atmospheric reentry, landing, and to further evaluate a pilot's ability to perform as a functional unit during spaceflight, demonstrating manual control of the craft during weightless periods, using the spacecraft observation window and periscope for altitude reference and recognition of ground checkpoints, and studying man's psychological reactions during spaceflight. The spacecraft used for Mercury Redstone 4 was delivered to Hangar S at Cape Canaveral, Florida on March 7, 1961. Upon delivery, the instrumentation and selected items of the communication system were removed from the spacecraft for bench testing. After reinstallation of the components, the system's test proceeded as scheduled. Those tests required a total of 33 days during which electrical Sequential, instrumentation, communication, environmental, reaction control, stabilization, and control systems were individually tested. After systems tests, the landing impact bag was installed, and then a simulated flight was run on the spacecraft. Then the parachutes and pyrotechnics were installed, and the spacecraft was weighed, balanced, and then delivered to the launch complex. Mercury Redstone 4 then spent 21 days on the launch pad. There were a few configuration differences between Alan Shepard's Mercury Redstone 3 and Mercury Redstone 4. First, as requested by the Mercury astronauts, a large trapezoid-shaped viewing window was added. This window allowed the astronauts to have a greater viewing area than the original side port windows. 
The Corning Glass Works of Corning, New York, designed and developed the multi-layered panes that made up the new window. The outer pane was 0.35 inches thick, made of Vicor glass. It could withstand temperatures of 1500 to 1800 degrees Fahrenheit. The inner plane was made up of three inner glass panels bonded to make a single inner plane. One plane was 0.17 inch thick sheet of Vicor, while the others were tempered glass. This new window assembly was as strong as any part of the spacecraft pressure vessel. The field of view was 30 degrees in the horizontal plane and 33 degrees in the vertical plane. Next, an explosive actuated side hatch was added to allow the astronaut to exit the spacecraft quickly in the event of an emergency. The mechanically operated side hatch on Mercury Redstone 3 was in the same location and of the same size but considerably heavier, 69 pounds, rather than the new explosive hatch which is 23 pounds. The original side hatch was bolted shut with 70 bolts and covered with several spacecraft shingles, making it a slow process to open the original hatch. The original exit procedure was to climb out through the antenna compartment after removing a small pressure bulkhead. This was a difficult and slow procedure. Removal of an injured or unconscious astronaut through the top hatch would be nearly impossible. The new explosively actuated hatch utilized an explosive charge to fracture the attaching bolts and thus separate the hatch from the spacecraft. 71 quarter inch titanium bolts secured the hatch to the door seal. A 0.06 inch diameter hole was drilled in each bolt to provide a weak point. A mild detonating fuse was installed in a channel between an inner and outer seal around the periphery of the hatch. When the mild detonating fuse was ignited, the resulting gas pressure between the inner and outer seal caused the bolts to fail in tension. There were two ways to fire the explosive hatch during recovery. On the inside of the hatch was a knobbed plunger. The pilot could remove a pin and press the plunger with a force of about 5 pounds. This would detonate the explosive charge which would shear off the 70 bolts and propel the hatch 25 feet away in one second. If the pin were left in place, a force of 40 pounds was required to detonate the hatch. An outside rescuer could blow the, open the hatch by removing a small panel near the hatch and pulling a lanyard. Next, there was an upgrade to the manual controls for Mercury 4. A new rate stabilization control system allowed the fine control of spacecraft attitude movements by smaller turns of the hand controller. Previously, a lot of jockeying the device was necessary to attain the desired attitude. This rate dampening or rate augmentation system gave finer and easier handling qualities and a redundant means of firing the pitch, yaw, and roll thrusters. And finally, there were some minor hardware changes to reduce vibrations the pilot experienced during the booster phase of the flight. 
These changes came in the form of a redesigned fairing for the spacecraft redstone adapter clamp ring and additional foam padding added to the head area of the contour couch. In January of 1961, Robert Gilruth, the director of the Space Task Group, informed Gus Grissom that he would be the primary pilot for Mercury 4. John Glenn would be the backup pilot. On July 15th of 1961, Gus Grissom announced he would name Mercury 4 Liberty Bell 7. Grissom said the name was an appropriate call sign for the bell-shaped spacecraft. He also said the name was synonymous with freedom. As a tribute to the original Liberty Bell, a crack was painted on the side of the spacecraft. The launch was originally scheduled for July 18th, but was rescheduled to July 19th because of unfavorable weather conditions. Then on July 19th, the countdown was stopped at T-10 minutes, and the launch was aborted due to more unfavorable weather. The launch was rescheduled for July 21st. The first half of the split launch countdown was begun at 6 a.m. Eastern Time on July 20th at T-640 minutes. Spacecraft preparation proceeded normally through the 12-hour planned hold period for hydrogen peroxide and pyrotechnic servicing. The evaluation of the weather at this time proved favorable and a go was given to pick up the second half of the countdown at 2.30 a.m. Eastern Standard Time on July 21st. At T-180 minutes prior to liquid oxygen loading, a planned one-hour hold was called for another weather evaluation. The evaluation was favorable and the count proceeded at 3 a.m. At T-45 minutes, a 30-minute hold was called to install a misaligned hatch bolt. At T-30 minutes, a 9-minute hold was called to turn off the pad searchlights, which interfered with launch telemetry during launch. At T-15 minutes, a 41-minute hold was called to await better cloud conditions. The count then proceeded from T-15 until liftoff. Gus Grissom was in the spacecraft three hours and 22 minutes prior to launch. Launch occurred at 7.20 a.m. Eastern Standard Time. Here's the countdown and launch starting at T-1 minute 20 seconds. Alan Shepard was the voice for Mission Control. Ready? 
Okay, have a good trip, Doug. We'll see you below. Oh, Roger. You five? Thank you, Mom. 30 seconds. Pretty fast speed. Okay, periscope is in. Yeah, 23 amps. Grissom later admitted at a post-flight debriefing that he was a bit scared at liftoff, but he added that he soon gained confidence along with the acceleration increase. Hearing the engine roar at the pedestal, he thought that his elapsed time clock had started late. Like Shepard, he was amazed at the smooth quality of the liftoff, but then he noticed gradually more severe vibrations. These were never violent enough to impair his vision. The cabin pressure sealed off at the proper altitude of 27,000 feet, and Grissom felt elated that the environmental control system was in good working order. Watching his instruments for the pitch rate of the redstone, Grissom saw it follow directions as programmed, tilting over about one degree per second. Under a 3G acceleration on the booster stage of his flight, Grissom noticed a sudden change in the color of the horizon from light blue to jet black. His attention was distracted by the noise of the tower jettison rocket firing on schedule. He felt the separation and watched the tower through the window as it drifted off, trailing smoke to his right. At 2 minutes and 22 seconds after launch, the Redstone Rocketdyne engine cut off after building a speed of 6,561 feet per second. Grissom had a strong sensation of tumbling during the transition from high to zero acceleration, and while he had become familiar with this sensation in the centrifuge, for a moment he lost his bearings. The Redstone coasted for 10 seconds after its engine cut off, then a sharp report signaled that the posigrade rockets were popping the spacecraft loose from the booster. Although Grissom peered out his window throughout his ship's turnaround maneuver, he never caught sight of his launch vehicle. Here's what it sounded like. Oxygen is go at 25 amps. Roger, we are go here. I stand by for cutoff. Separated. We 
We are at zero G and turning around and the sun is really bright. Roger, caps up is green, turnaround has started. Manual handle out. With turnaround accomplished, Grissom for the first time became a space pilot, assuming manual control. A constant urge to look out the window made concentrating on his control task difficult. He told Shepard back at Mission Control that the panorama of Earth's horizon was fascinating. His instruments rated a poor second to the spectacular view. Turning reluctantly to his dials and control stick, Grissom made a pitch movement change, but was past his desired mark. He jockeyed the hand controller stick for position, trying to damp out all oscillations, then made a yaw movement and went too far in that direction. By the time the proper attitude was attained, the short time allocated for these maneuvers had been used, so he omitted the roll movement altogether. Grissom found the manual controls very sluggish when compared to the Mercury trainer. He then switched to the new rate command control systems and found perfect response, although fuel consumption was high. After the pitch and yaw maneuvers, Grissom made a roll movement so he could see the ground from his window. Some land beneath the clouds appeared in the hazy distance, but he was unable to identify it. Then suddenly Cape Canaveral came into view so clearly that Grissom found it hard to believe that his slant range was over 150 miles. He saw Merritt Island, the Banana River, the Indian River, and what appeared to be a large airport runway. South of Cape Canaveral, he saw what he believed to be West Palm Beach. Here's what it sounded like. Manual handle is out. The sky is very, very black. The capsule is coming around into orbit attitude. The roll is a little bit slow. I can't. I haven't seen a booster any place. Okay, lead command is coming on. I'm in orbit attitude. I'm pitching up. Oh, Roger, lead command is coming on. You're trying manual pitch. I think someplace. Oh, okay. I got roll back. Okay, I went too far on pitch. Oh, Roger, your IP is right on, Gus, right on. Okay, I'm having a little bit of trouble with, re with the manual control. Roger. Thank you, stabilized here. All axes are working all right. Roger, understand manual control is good. Roger, it's sort of sluggish more than I expected. Okay, I'm relying. Roger, yeah. Uh, okay, uh, coming back in the office. I'm a little bit late there. Roger, reading you loud and clear, Gus. A lot of stuff floating around up here. Okay, I'm going to skip the yaw or roll because I'm a little bit late. And I've got to try this left yaw maneuver. The bottom I can really see is clouds. I haven't seen any land anyplace yet. Oh, uh, Roger, you're on the window. Are you trying a yaw maneuver? I'm trying a yaw maneuver, and I'm on the window. It's such a fascinating view out the window. You just can't help but look out that way. I understand. Really Four plus thirty, guys. Four plus thirty. Uh, he's uh, looking out the window. Uh, okay. I can see the coast, but I, I I can't identify anything. Roger. Four plus thirty, guys. 
With Liberty Bell and an altitude of 118 miles, it was now time to position the spacecraft into re-entry attitude. Grissom had initiated the retro-rocket sequence and the spacecraft was arcing downward. His pulse reached 171 beats per minute. Retrofire gave him the distinct and peculiar feeling that he had reversed his backward flight through space and was actually moving face forward. As he plummeted downward, he saw what appeared to be two of the spent retro-rockets pass across the periscope view. Here's what it sounded like. Okay, let me get back here to retro-attitude. Retro-sequence has started. Roger, retro-sequence started. Go to retro-attitude. All right, let's see if I'm in bad, not very good shape here. Got 15 seconds, plenty of time. I'll give you a mark at 510. Okay, retro-attitude is still green. Pitching the spacecraft over a re-entry attitude of 14 degrees from Earth vertical, Grissom tried to see the stars out of his observation window. Instead, the glare of sunlight filled his cabin, making it difficult to read the panel dials, particularly those with blue lights. Grissom felt that he would not have noticed the .05G light if he had not known it was about to flash on. Reentry presented no problem. Grissom could not feel the oscillations following the acceleration buildup. He could only read them on the rate indicators. Meanwhile, he continued to report to the Mercury Control Center on his electric current reading, fuel quantity, acceleration, and other instrument indications. Condensation and smoke trailed off the heat shield at about 65,000 feet as Liberty Bell plunged back into the atmosphere. The drogue chute deployed on schedule at 21,000 feet. Grissom said he saw the deployment and felt some resulting pulsation motion, but not enough to worry him. Main parachute deployment occurred at 12,300 feet, which was about 1,000 feet higher than the desired nominal altitude. Watching the main chute unfurl, Grissom spotted a 6-inch L-shaped tear and another two-inch puncture in the canopy. Although he worried about them, the holes grew no bigger, and his rate of descent soon slowed to about 28 feet per second. He then dumped his peroxide control fuel and began transmitting his panel readings. Here's the clip. Got a pitch read in here. Okay, the G's are starting to build. Roger. These are building, we're up to six. There's nine. There's about ten. And the uh, handle is uh, off of one direction. Yeah, there I got a little pitch rate coming back down to seven. 
Okay, the altimeter is active at 65. There's 60. Okay, I'm getting some contrail, evidently a shockwave. 50,000 feet, I'm feeling good. I'm very good. Everything is fine. 45,000, do you still read? Okay, 40,000 feet, do you read? Okay, 35,000 feet if you read me. sound confirmed that the landing bag had dropped in preparation for splashdown. Grissom then removed his oxygen hose and opened his visor, but deliberately left the suit ventilation hose attached. Impact was milder than he expected, although the spacecraft heeled over in the water until Grissom was lying on his left side. He thought he was facing downward. The spacecraft gradually righted itself, and as the window cleared the water, Grissom jettisoned the reserve parachute and activated the rescue aid switch. Liberty Bell still appeared watertight, although it was rolling badly with the swells. Here's the clip. 30 feet per, 32 feet per second on the main chute, and the landing bag is out green. Hello, does anybody read Liberty Bell? Liberty Bell 7, Liberty Bell 7, this is Atlantic Ship Capcom. Read you loud and clear. Our telemetry confirms your events. Over. Atlantic Ship Capcom, this is Liberty Bell 7. How do you read me? Over. Read you loud and clear, loud and clear. Over. Liberty Bell 7, Liberty Bell 7, this is Atlantic Ship Capcom. How do you read me? Over. Atlantic Ship, Atlantic Ship Capcom, this is Liberty Bell 7, I read you loud and clear, how me, over. Roger, Bell 7, read you loud and clear, your status looks good, your systems look good, we confirm your events, over. Uh, roger, and confirm the uh, fuel has dumped, over. Roger, confirm again, confirm again, has your auto fuel dumped, over. Oh, and manual fuel has dumped. 
Preparing for recovery, Grissom disconnected his helmet and checked himself for debarkation. The neck dam did not unroll easily. Grissom tinkered with his suit collar to ensure his buoyancy in the event that he had to get out of the spacecraft quickly. When the recovery helicopters, which had taken to the air at launch time and visually followed the contrails and parachute descent, were still about two miles from Splashdown Point. Lieutenant James L. Lewis, pilot of the primary recovery helicopter, radioed Grissom to ask if he was ready for pickup. He replied that he wanted them to wait five minutes while he recorded his cockpit data. Using a grease pencil with the pressure suit gloves was awkward, and several times the suit ventilation caused the neck dam to balloon, but Grissom simply placed his thumb between his neck and the dam to allow the air to escape. Here's the audio. At this point, Grissom is calmly taking notes on his final switch positions. He's not in a hurry to get out of the capsule, and there is no panic in his voice. At T plus 25 minutes, 20 seconds, after logging the panel data, Grissom asked the helicopters to begin the approach for pickup. He removed the pin from the hatch cover detonator and laid back in the couch. Now I'm going to read the conversation from the flight transcript. Grissom. Okay, Hunt Club, this is Liberty Bell. Are you ready for the pickup? Hunt Club. This is Hunt Club 1. This is affirmative. Grissom. Okay, latch on, then give me a call, and I'll power down and blow the hatch, okay? Hunt Club 1. This Hunt Club 1, Roger, will give you a call when we're ready for you to blow. Grissom. Roger, I've unplugged my suit, so I'm kind of warm now, so... Hunt Club 1. 1, Roger. Grissom. Now, if you tell me to, uh, you're ready for me to blow, I'll have to take my helmet off, power down, and then blow the hatch. Hunt Club 1. 1, Roger, and when you blow the hatch, the collar will already be down there waiting for you, and we're turning base at this time. Grissom. Uh, Roger. Now I'm reading from Grissom's flight report as he describes what happened next. Quote, I was lying flat on my back at this time, and I turned my attention to the knife in the survival pack, wondering if there might be some way I could carry it out with me as a souvenir. I heard the hatch blow. The noise was a dull thud, and I looked up to see blue sky out of the hatch and water starting to spill over the door sill. Just a few minutes before, I had gone over the egress procedures in my mind, and I reacted instinctively. I lifted the helmet from my head and dropped it, reached for the right side of the instrument panel, and pulled myself through the hatch. After I was in the water and away from the spacecraft, I noticed a line from the die marker can over my shoulder. 
The spacecraft was obviously sinking, and I was concerned that I might be pulled down with it. I freed myself from the line and noticed that I was floating with my shoulders above the water. The helicopter was on top of the spacecraft at this time, with all three of its landing gear in the water. I thought the co-pilot was having difficulty hooking onto the spacecraft, and I swam the four or five feet to give him some help. Actually, he had cut the antenna and hooked the spacecraft in record time. The helicopter pulled up and away from me with the spacecraft, and I saw the personnel slings start downward. Then the sling was pulled back into the helicopter, and it started to move away from me. At this time, I knew that a second helicopter had been assigned to pick me up, so I started to swim away from the primary helicopter. I apparently got caught in the rotor wash between the two helicopters because I could not get close to the second helicopter. Even though I could see the horse collar swinging in the water, I finally reached a horse collar, and by this time, I was getting quite exhausted. When I first got into the water, I was floating quite high up. I would say my armpits were just about at the water level, but the neck dam was not up tight and I had forgotten to lock the oxygen inlet port so the air was gradually seeping out of my suit. Probably the most air was going out around the neck dam, but I could see that I was gradually sinking lower and lower in the water and was having a difficult time staying afloat. Before the co-pilot finally got the horse collar to me, I was going underwater quite often. The mild swells we were having were breaking over my head, and I was swallowing some salt water. As I reached the horse collar, I slipped it into it, and I knew that I had it on backwards, but I gave the up signal and held on because I knew that I wasn't likely to slip out of the sling. As soon as I got into the helicopter, my first thought was to get on a life preserver so that if anything happened to the helicopter, I wouldn't have another ordeal in the water. Shortly after this time, the co-pilot informed me that the spacecraft had been dropped as a result of an engine malfunction in the primary helicopter. This is how Lieutenant John Reinhardt, the co-pilot of the nearest recovery helicopter, reported the event. The helicopters were making their final approach for pickup. He was preparing to cut the spacecraft's antenna whip with a squib actuated cutter at the end of the pole when he saw the hatch cover fly off, strike the water at a distance of about five feet from the hatch, and then go skipping over the waves. Next, he saw Grissom's head appear and the astronaut begin climbing through the hatch. Once out, Grissom swam away. Leaving aside the swimming astronaut, the pilot, Lewis, completed his approach to the sinking spacecraft as both he and Reinhard were intent on spacecraft recovery. This action was a conditioned reflex based on past experience. While training off the Virginia beaches, the helicopter pilots had noted that the astronauts seemed at home in and to enjoy the water. So... Reinhard quickly cut the high-frequency antenna as soon as the helicopter reached Liberty Bell. Throwing aside the antenna cutting device, Reinhard picked up the Shepard's hook recovery pole and carefully threaded the crook through the recovery loop on top of the spacecraft. 
By this time, Lewis had lowered the helicopter to assist Reinhardt in his task to a point that the chopper's three wheels were in the water. Liberty Bell 7 sank out of sight, but the pickup pole tangled as the attached cable went tight, indicating to the helicopter pilots that they had made their catch. Reinhardt immediately prepared to pass the floating astronaut the personnel hoist, but at that moment Lewis called a warning that a detector light had flashed on the instrument panel, indicating that metal chips were in the oil sump because of engine strain. Considering the implications of impending engine failure, Lewis told Reinhardt to retract the personnel hoist while he called the second chopper to retrieve Grissom. As the first helicopter moved away from Grissom, it struggled to raise the spacecraft high enough to drain the water from the impact bag. At one point, the spacecraft was almost clear of the water, but like an anchor, it prevented the helicopter from moving forward. The flooded Liberty Bell 7 weighed over 5,000 pounds, which was 1,000 pounds beyond the helicopter's lifting capacity. Lewis watched his red warning light and decided not to chance losing two crafts in one day, so he cut loose the capsule and it sank swiftly. Here's a clip of the news report of the flight of Mercury Redstone 4. Everything about the takeoff and flight is perfect. A bigger window gives the captain such a view he fell behind on his cockpit checks. He controls the flight of his capsule as did Commander Shepard, something the Russian astronaut did not do. His flight carries him 118 miles aloft and 303 miles downrange. During the 16-minute flight, he hits a top speed of 5,280 miles an hour. Helicopters take off from the carrier Randolph to pick up astronaut and capsule as his parachute is sighted. finale. As Captain Grissom prepares to leave the Mercury, the explosive bolts let go and blow off the escape hatch cover. While a helicopter tries vainly to keep the capsule afloat, Grissom is forced to swim clear of the whirling blades so that another craft can pick him up. He's underwater for three minutes in a tense real-life drama. to safety in a sling, again emphasizing the fact that concern for the astronaut is always of prime importance in our space program. While he is rescued, the other helicopter wrestles with the water-filled capsule, but the weight is too great. It has to be cut loose to rest on the bottom of the sea three miles down. A cheering crew on the Randolph welcomes the captain back to the carrier. The nation's second man into space was able to send back invaluable data that pushes forward our program despite the loss of the films and other information aboard the sunken capsule. A salute to Captain Grissom, our new space hero.
Substantial controversy ensued as Grissom reported that the hatch had blown prematurely without his authorization. Engineering teams believed that this was unlikely. Subsequent independent technical review of the incident raised doubts regarding the incident's report conclusions that Grissom blew the hatch and was responsible for the loss of the spacecraft. Several Mercury flights later, astronaut Wally Sherall manually blew Sigma 7's hatch after recovery when his spacecraft was on the deck of the recovery ship in a deliberate attempt to dispel the rumor that Grissom might have blown Liberty Bell 7's hatch deliberately. As anticipated, the kickback from the manual trigger left Sherall with a visible injury to his right hand. Grissom was uninjured when he exited the spacecraft, as documented by his post-flight physical. This strongly supports his assertion that he did not accidentally hit the trigger, since in that case he would have been even more likely to injure himself than with intentional activation. Several years later, during an interview, Grissom said he thought the hatch might have been triggered because the external release lanyard came loose. On Liberty Bell 7, the external release lanyard was only held in place by a single screw. It was better secured on later flights. This theory was accepted by Gunter Vint, the pad leader for most early American manned spaceflights. In an ironic twist of fate, the inability to quickly open a hatch contributed to Grissom's death as well as that of Ed White and Roger B. Chaffee in Apollo 1. Use of an explosive hatch had been rejected following the discovery by engineers that, in fact, an explosive egress system on a spacecraft could inadvertently fire without being triggered. On July 20, 1999, the 30th anniversary of the Apollo 11 lunar landing and one day before the 38th anniversary of Mercury 4's flight, Oceaneering International lifted the Liberty Bell 7 spacecraft off the floor of the Atlantic Ocean and onto the deck of a recovery ship. The team was led by Kurt Newport and financed by the Discovery Channel. The spacecraft was found after a 14-year effort by Newport at a depth of nearly 15,000 feet. Liberty Bell 7 was then sent to the Kansas Cosmosphere and Space Center, where it was disassembled, cleaned, and is now on display. In conclusion, despite the failure of the explosive hatch to properly function and the loss of the spacecraft, Mercury Redstone 4 was deemed a successful mission. The incident resulted in a change of procedures which required the firing safety pin to remain in place until after the helicopter hook was attached and tension applied to the recovery cable. There is strong evidence that NASA did not blame Grissom for the loss of Liberty Bell 7 in the fact that he was maintained in the prime rotation spot for future flights, commanding the first Gemini flight and the first planned Apollo flight. Thanks for listening to this archive episode of the Space Rocket History Podcast. 
If you are financially able, please support the podcast by going to the homepage, spacerockethistory.com, and clicking on the orange Donate button or the Patreon link. Thanks.